Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Hey there, good morning. This morning I'm broadcasting from Chattanooga, Tennessee at the site of the IASER conference. IASER is the International Association of Investigation and Security Regulators. Boy, is that a mouthful. These are the people uh, that regulate the private investigation industry along with representatives from various industry groups like private investigators and security professionals, alarm companies, people like that. So it's an interesting conference down here in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'm really excited to talk to you today. I'm a little, uh, I'm a little discombobulated with the time change, so I will tell you that I thought it was an hour earlier than it was, but here we are, and I'm really excited today to present my friend and colleague, Andrea Orozco from Colorado as my guest. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning. How are you, Francie? I'm great. I'm excited about having you on the show today. Andrea um, is a professional investigator. She's been around, oh gosh, what, about 15 years, Andrea? Going on 17 years now. Going on 17 years. And you, you work in Colorado. I do. And I know that you have uh, some association influence. You were the VP of training for your state association, which is the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado. And you, um, you did a lot of training and education for all of your investigators throughout Colorado. I did, and I am now the VP of legislation because that is something that's really important to me in Colorado as well. Well, and exciting in Colorado because you've actually only had a licensing law for now. What is it? Is it going on four years? It's it's two years now. We had a voluntary license for a year prior to uh, the uh, license that was implemented two years ago. So the program is still very, very new. But I believe as of now, we've got about 750 licensed investigators in the state of Colorado. That's fabulous. How exciting because... Because it used to be that investigators that got disbanded from their own state often went to Colorado because they could practice without having a license there, and it, was, it affected all of us. Absolutely. And, you know, I really want to thank you for introducing me as a professional investigator. A lot of people consider still our profession as the CD type, so to call ourselves professional investigators in my eyes has always been something that's been important to me and kind of gives a little bit more of that professional edge to our profession. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I, and I commend you guys for getting a licensing law passed. We have, I think we only have maybe three or four states left that don't have licensing right now. And uh, I, know, I know they're reaching out to you to figure out what to do about it because it's a consumer protection issue. Consumers need it to really be. It really is. Yeah, they need to be have a place to go if there's a problem. And without licensing, there is nothing. 
it raises it raises the standards for our profession. So yeah, there are I believe only four states left, and I you know I really feel that it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when those get mm-hmm. licensing as well. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And so uh, currently, you you are the third uh, vice president for the National Council of Investigative and Security Services. That's really exciting. Um, it is. It sounds a lot scarier when you say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Only yeah. following in the footsteps of people like you, Francie. Uh, well, it's you know it's an important association. It's you know, as you know, maybe people that are listening do not know. NCISS is the organization that protects us in Washington D.C. So, if your state association has a legislative. Uh, component like what Andrea works for works with in Colorado, then NCISS is the organization that represents all of us in Washington D.C. when there's an issue there. And of course, you know, people in Washington D.C. have been busy the last couple of years. They've been kind of focused on other interests, but it will come back to uh, center where we may become a target again when it when it has to do with privacy and things like that. So it's really important uh, association. I'm really really glad that you took on the uh, an office. It's terrific. Thank you, thank you. And you know, I got involved because a few years ago, a lot of us don't feel the need for the legislative process or that we need to get involved. But a few years back, oh, it's it's been probably five to six years. Um, we were not involved in the legislative process here in Colorado, and there was a bill that was coming down the pike that was going to shut out any surveillance investigations in the state of Colorado. From that, I kind of started seeing what the importance was to not only take part in your state association in the legislative process, but more on a national level and a federal level with NCISS. In the first opportunity I had to go to our annual Hit the Hill was very humbling for me. It was really humbling to walk those halls and actually speak with our lawmakers about what we do as investigators because the stigma is still out there about what we should and shouldn't have access to and what we should and shouldn't do as investigators or what they think based on what they see on TV. So to take part in that um, with NCIS has has been very educational, very humbling, and it makes a difference in our profession and how we continue to do our jobs. That's that's great. And, And Andrea, why don't you explain a little bit what Hit the Hill is, because a lot of people may not know. What, they, what Hit the Hill is, is our members and people in our profession gather in Washington, D.C. once a year, and we go and speak with the lawmakers about bills that may be coming down the pike that may affect how we do our jobs, or to even educate them on what it is that we do and what types of things are important to us, like social security numbers, in order for us to do our research, um, the PPA, uh, that type of thing. So it's really important. It's an important venue. Anybody can can take part in that. I believe this next year we have it in March, um, and it's pretty. It's a pretty important and very humbling venue. So, uh, were you concerned the first time you went? Were you afraid that uh, to meet with legislators? You know, these are elected Congress people in our United States government. Were you afraid of that? 
You know, I really was. And I've got to tell you a little bit of a personal tidbit. I was a permanent resident, but I was not a citizen when I started taking part. I've been in the U.S. for a number of years. I came from Germany um, years ago, but I just never took the test, never thought that it would be important to be a citizen. Through that process, I became a citizen. So it was wow. actually NCIS Health that gave me that little bump in the behind to step forward and to do that. It was scary to take part of the first one. It was intimidating to take part in the first one. But the people at NCISS put you under their wings, people like you, people like Dean Beers, people like Bob Healis, um, take you under their wings and show you the process. And after you kind of get used to, these are just people that you're speaking with, and they really want to know what's important to us as a profession and us as constituents, and they want to hear from you. They want you to educate them. So to sit down with them and and be able to do that and be able to talk about what it is that we do as investigators and how we make a difference in all different types of investigations or the security professions, you know, after a while, it wasn't so scary anymore. It became something that made me more passionate about Mm -hmm. taking part. And and how were you received by the the uh, Congress offices? Oh my gosh, they are very welcoming. Um, you know, a lot of times you may not get an opportunity to speak with them personally, but you can speak with their aides, and they will sit down with you and give you that time and take notes. And what I noticed this last year, they remember you from the year before, the year mm-hmm. before that, and they ask you, okay, what is it this year that you guys? are focusing on what is it this year that you guys find important or that you want the senator to know. So that in itself is like, wow, they recognize us. We have a face to our profession. They want to hear about things that are important to us. So it's, it's, it's really not as intimidating anymore as it was the first time. But even the first timers, after they take part in that. You know, last year I had a couple of people that came up to me and said, wow, this was really, this was really transforming to me. This was something that makes me more passionate about taking part in this and why it made me realize why this is so important. So to hear that um, is really rewarding. Yeah, and you know, the staff members, you know, a lot of times they're more up to speed on the issues, on the bills that are pending than their bosses are. The elected people. They're the ones that give the elected people the information. You know, you are so right. I kind of, I saw that. The difference in speaking with some of the aides and speaking with with their bosses uh, is marketable. And you're right. It it does make you realize that sometimes they're a little bit more educated um, or knowledgeable about what's, what's going on than their bosses are. Mm, yeah, yeah. It, it really is a fascinating process, and people really, I mean, I'm speaking to you investigators out there in the world, it's really important to get involved because it's an ongoing education process. It's every day because we have to remember that we're bombarded with the negative everywhere we turn, Absolutely. on TV, yeah. on the radio, in the newspaper. If you know, if some investigator somewhere does something does something bad, then it's in the newspapers and it it spreads out on all of us. And if we're not on top of it, if we're not educating people, if we're not telling people what we really do and what we care about, and that we follow the law, and that we're really in business to take care of people, they're not going to know. 
Absolutely. And you know what, Francie, the one thing that I realized is it's not always intentional. The bills are not always intentional um, to take us out of business, to take how we do our jobs, you know, to take anything away from us. Sometimes it can be a certain wording in a bill that they may not realize would affect mm-hmm. us or could affect us or right. a sentence or or leaving us out of a certain bill that could inhibit how we do our jobs. And a lot of people, a lot of investigators, you know, the thing that I always find surprising, they're like, oh, that doesn't affect me well, until it does. And mm-hmm. then what? It's a lot easier to go in on the forefront and educate and make a difference in how these might affect us than after it gets put into place because to change a bill once it's put in place is really difficult, if not impossible at times. Exactly, really difficult. And you're right. It, it isn't, we're not typically a target. Very seldom are we a target of a bill um, unless it's maybe a privacy issue, it could be. And, and you know, the, the real issue is on privacy, and I understand why people don't want their personal information out in the world. That's, we all feel that way. But at the same time, if you have a lawsuit, you're you, you know, hired an attorney and you have a lawsuit, whether it's a civil lawsuit or if maybe a friend of yours or a relative has been charged with a criminal charge, you need that access to contact Absolutely. people. If, the, yep. if, you're, if your witness, perhaps, your primary witness is named Richard Thomas, how many Richard Thomases are they, are they in the United States? Right. And how many Richard Thomases are there in each state? So you have to have other identifiers to be able to locate somebody that may be a critical person to the case you're trying to get involved in. And the one thing people may not realize this year with the Equifax breach, I really believe that privacy concerns are going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was unfortunate. Very unfortunate that that happened. And, you know, hopefully um, people have paid attention and gone and gotten their uh, credit report and made sure that they're not compromised. I hope that's happened because Equifax has given them everybody that opportunity. I think you, all you have to do is log on to the Equifax website and it gives you instructions. Right. So anyway... Um, Thanks for for talking about that, Andrea, because I think this is a really important uh, aspect of our profession. As as you and I both spend a lot of time doing uh, this legislative stuff and uh, talking to people about how things should be, uh, I'm I'm glad you brought it up. So let's talk about you and talk about what you do. So what is the basis of your business? What we do is we conduct surveillance for insurance, Um, workers' compensation, insurance fraud, insurance defense purposes. That's what our company's mainstay is. That's what we've done for years. That's what we specialize in. Okay. And so you're hired by who? Generally attorneys, insurance companies, corporations, um, school districts, that type of thing. Okay. And now uh, you also do some child custody kinds of investigations as well? We do. As investigators, though, we generally weed out more than we take on. Usually, if our company gets involved in child custody disputes, it's through an attorney. And and then you uh, same probably same thing with personal injury or employee misconduct and other uh, parts of your business that you do. Right. Correct. Okay. Now, um, 
you had a surveillance for a major casino. Can you talk about that? Well, basically, I started out, when I first started out doing this years ago, I really didn't know or realize that I was going to be a private or professional investigator. When I first started out, how I even got into this was um, I had horses that were, a team of horses that were stolen for me, and I conducted the investigation into the people that stole the horses for me and ended up uncovering a couple of state theft rings and brought all the information into court, and the judge said, I don't know what you're doing right now, but this is what you should be doing. This is the most thorough investigation I've seen in a long time. Wow. So (laughs) I started out in Minnesota, and Minnesota had some pretty stringent licensing laws, and the only way to get started was to work under somebody. And when I started, I started working internally for a casino and also had a full-time job. I had two full-time jobs. Um, working for an investigator to kind of teach me from the ground up the old gumshoe way, you know, going out and retrieving documents and that type of thing, interviewed statements. But mm-hmm. when I worked for the casino, what I did is internal investigation, so the old eye-in-the-sky type of um, deal and uh, looking at collusion, looking at theft, that type of thing. That's what I did for the casino. Very interesting. Now, and was that in Minnesota as well? It was. Huh. I, just, uh, I guess I wasn't aware that Minnesota had a lot of casinos. Do they, do they have a lot of casinos? They do. Minnesota does have quite a few casinos in different areas because of the Native American um, population and, you know, residents there. So there are quite a few. It's not like Vegas. One casino there may be bigger than a few of the, uh, or, you know, especially even here in Colorado, I'm sure you're aware, being from this area, Francie, some of the casinos can be quite small, but the casinos that I took part in and worked in were quite large. And were those Native American casinos as well? Yes, they were. Interesting. So uh, that's interesting that you would be employed at a Native American casino. How did that work out? I loved it. It really taught me a lot as far as observation skills. Um, you know, looking for things, looking for cues, what an investigator thinks like. And I think it really crossed over quite a bit when I started into the private sector on what it is, the type of skill set that an investigator needs to get started in this profession. You know, last last year, about this time, this same conference that I'm at, I asked her, was, had their conference in Vegas. And we had an opportunity to... Uh, to tour the back scenes of the casino and see all the security systems. It was fascinating. It is. It is. The technology that you have in those, in those type of venues is so much more than people think. I mean, we had face, facial recognition software that, you know, didn't even come out into the private sector until later on. So some of the things that we were able to work with were pretty interesting, mm. innovative. Very. What a great start. And and how did you get from Minnesota to Colorado? I actually moved here about 14 years ago. I guess it's been about 15 years this year. I moved here, uh, fresh start, mountains. I'm from a mountain area in Germany. I'm from Bavaria. So this was very much the way that I grew up in the scenery, in the, the people. I really loved Colorado, and I'm really glad I was able to make 
um, you know, to have an opportunity to move here and to start my career here. That's exciting. And I can't leave this with, with uh, asking you what, what made you move from v- Bavaria to Minnesota originally. <laughs> It was kicking and screaming as a teenager, believe me. My mother remarried an American that was in the Army, and uh, his tour of duty became up and had to move back here. So that's why we came over to the United States, but a lot of my family is still in, in Germany. And how old were you at the time? Thirteen. Oh, my gosh. So English that... is my second language. Yeah. And what a major change, though. <laughs> Kids here get upset, move to a different town or a different house. <laughs> yeah, it's it definitely different, different. The way of life is, is different here. You know, I mean, the food is definitely different. Um, way of life, the, some of the belief systems, I came from a small town in Germany, so everybody knew everybody for years and years. A little bit of a difference, but uh, I definitely love what the U.S. has to offer, and thanks to NCISS, am a citizen. So I don't think I know what town you moved from. What was it? It's a little town by Bayreuth in Nuremberg. It's just a very small little town. And it's called what? Gefäß. Okay. Because the reason I'm asking is because I lived uh, I lived in Salog by Gerpingen for about a year. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk so about you that. You know what I'm time. talking about? <laughs> yeah. No, it's fabulous. Fabulous country. Fabulous place to live. I loved it. So, um, so, so moving on, uh, talk about investigation here instead of our personal lives. Um, you work with a lot of other investigators. Can we talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So, um, we call this subcontracting. You hire another investigator. Maybe, maybe you have a surveillance case, I guess, and you need uh, somebody. Well, let's let's talk about surveillance for a minute before we get into that. Tell us about surveillance and what the objective is for a surveillance. The objective is to observe and record uh, what the subjects, claimants, activities are. So it's not our opinions. It's not what we think they should do. It's not making something happen. It's basically to go out there and conduct surveillance and uh, determine what their daily activities are and report that back to the client in the form of video and report. Okay, and so when you're hired by an insurance company, typically the insurance company evidently believes there's some impropriety of by the claimant. Is that correct? Most often, yes. Generally, by the time that an investigator gets a surveillance for an insurance defense purpose, workers' compensation, um, personal injury defense, you know, what we do, there's generally already some kind of an idea that something's just not right or that maybe what they're presenting doesn't match with what the doctor might be finding or, you know, some other um, instances like that. So it's our job to go out there and observe and record what what is actually going on. Mm-hmm. And so... How do you start? What do you, you know, give us some ideas of you get an assignment, um, what happens next? Well, for us, it's not just going out and conducting the surveillance. That's only part of the investigation. As a surveillance investigator, a lot of people think, okay, you guys just go out there and follow people around. Well, no. We actually do a complete workup on somebody, social media, you know, um, 
if somebody has a digital footprint, what they have, what type, you know, what type of activities they may be involved in. And then we go out there and conduct the surveillance to determine what their activities actually are. So it's, it can be short days, it can be long days. You never know where you're going to end up. You're basically just along for the ride conducting surveillance. And it's really tough work. <laughs> you know, as the older I get, I'm starting to realize it's getting tougher and tougher. Yeah, yeah it is I'm, tough work. It's a skill. It's an art. It is. And following somebody, if you're the only person that is assigned to the job and they're going, they're driving someplace, is even more difficult. It is because you don't know where they're going or what they're doing. Um, your job is also to be covert, not overt. In some of the cases, we may work not just for a couple of days, but actually for several months. So, you know, our job is to make sure that we follow and and uh, document activities and not be noticed, which so may sound I, easy, but it's not. Yeah, it, no, it's not at all, and I, I couldn't do it, so I can tell you right now. I know it's hard. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I love it, though. Well, that's, and then that's great, because uh, people that... Typically, people that are surveillance investigators do love it, and I guess you'd have to, to do it. So, um, okay, so what kinds of things in your experience over the years have you found when you're on surveillance? Say, say the, the person is being suspected of fraud, for example, workers' comp fraud or whatever kind of fraud it is. Mm-hmm. What kinds of things have you found that has made the case for your client? Some, it really depends on the case. Sometimes it can be, you know, that they're saying that they can't do anything and they're out and being really active, um, involved in things such as, you know, possibly horseback riding, So let's say, or, you know, playing baseball or hiking or biking, really active people rather than what they're portraying to the doctor or to the client themselves. Uh, Sometimes it can be the information that we end up finding in in our overview of the investigation, the stuff that we do behind the scenes, you know, behind the computer that may be really beneficial, what they're putting out there on social media. Um, it really depends on the investigation. No investigation is the same. So the objective is always to observe and record. It's never to create a situation or make something happen. So no investigation is ever the same. For sure. I, and I suppose if they <laughs> ride horses, you're not also getting on a horse and following on your horse. Well, I am a horseback rider, so, you know, the nice thing about investigators are is to be able to blend into the environment. So sometimes it really depends on what type of situations we're involved in. We've had people that we've followed into concert venues. Um, You'll have to ask Robert about that one, Francie. I believe he ended up at a uh, a rock concert, a really heavy-duty rock concert, where he got bit in the hand doing surveillance. Oh, my gosh. Robert's your husband. We should say that. He is. Husband and partner. Uh, So sometimes it really depends on the type of situations that we get ourselves involved in. And, of course, everything is always documented in a public setting, never in a private setting. Well, now now that uh, uh, Denver has uh, trains back and forth all over the place, I suspect you must have to stop and hop on a train as well. Yep. On foot, 
on train, on bus, um, it, you know, whatever the situation requires. Really challenging. Yes, you have to be ready for anything. So, so then you hire subcontractors to, say, cover a time when you're not available or maybe an area that isn't necessarily close to you. Is that how that works? Correct, or maybe as investigators, something that we don't um, offer uh, that may benefit the client, such as an interview statement or, you know, a documenting scene of photographs or something like that, um, where we might bring in a subcontractor or other investigators contacting us as subcontractors to do surveillance for them. So... When you get a call from another investigator to hire you on a case, what's your mindset? You know, over the years, my mindset has changed. A lot of times when we receive phone calls as investigators where somebody else is wanting to use us on a job as a subcontractor, if it's somebody we've known for a long time or because they're in the same profession as us, what I realized over the years in speaking to different investigators or even observing some of my own experiences with subcontract investigators is that they don't make that switch of when that person calls, that person is no longer your colleague or buddy. That person is now your client. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, that is a different mindset for sure because we talk to our clients differently than we talk to other investigators. Absolutely. All of a sudden that camaraderie needs to go away. That personal you know, you have that personal relation, relationship possible, possibly with the other investigator. That needs to kind of go on the wayside. You need to treat them no differently than you would if an if a, uh, attorney or a corporate client is calling you for the first time. I totally agree with you, Andrew. I think we need to take a, a real quick break here just for a second for let our commercial uh, figure in the scene here. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com 
Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Andrea Roscoe, who is a surveillance investigator in Colorado, and we're just talking about hiring subcontractors. And Andrea, you're just talking about how this mind shift from talking to a colleague changes to talking to a client. And I, th- I think that's it's subtle, but it's so important because a lot of times I don't think we treat each other as clients even when we're clients. I agree. So, and I, I, I guess it's what respect. It's concern for their issues. I mean, what do you think the difference is? For me, it's a lot of things. The reason that I felt important to speak about this is not only for us as subcontractors, but for people. There are a lot of people that get into this, and they are totally comfortable, you know, in their career. All they want to do is subcontract work for others. But yet they don't have the mindset of looking at that colleague or other investigative professional as their client. So when someone contacts me to conduct a subcontract assignment, immediately, immediately my mindset changes to this person is now my client. They are representing their own client, and I need to treat them with the utmost respect and care for the case that they're entrusting me with. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of myself when I've contacted other people to be to do some work. I did recently. I needed to contact, I think, five or six different investigators across the country to help out with a case we had in California. And um, I'm I may have to change my attitude. <laughs> it's a subtle change, but it makes all the difference in the way that you handle that case. Because the way that we speak with a client or an attorney, like I said before, I always look at it as this is the first time that you may be speaking with that person in a professional sense of taking over an assignment and representing them and their client. So immediately, if you switch your mindset to this is no longer my colleague, buddy, friend, cohort in this profession, this is now my client, I think it it makes the whole investigation run more professional in the way that you treat that case. Absolutely. I agree with you. And you have some pointers, actually, some guidelines that I'd love for you to share with people on the way you operate your business. Well, the way that we operate our business, and a lot of it is from experience and either having people conduct subcontract investigations for our company and the best way to represent us or vice versa, where I'm doing that for another investigator. And the guidelines have really been from that experience. Uh, you know, things that you would do with a new client, return phone calls promptly. Don't wait for three to four days to call that person back because you know that investigator, your buddies, pals, or, you know, you may have other things that you feel are more important. Um, be professional in communications. Uh, 
be very clear on what the assignment is and what's expected of you instead of just treating it as a conversation between two investigators. Um, we had an incident where we had a subcontractor that had to subsequently go to court and testify. And in coming to speak with the attorney for the initial uh, meeting, you know, they showed up in, in flip-flops and shorts. And to no. me... Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> to me, that's like you are now representing the person that you are subcontracting for. So be professional in your dress and demeanor. Treat it like you would treat any professional client, like an attorney. I, I know I keep going back to that, but there's a certain... I believe there's a certain standard that's expected when you go to meet with a first-time client, like a corporate client or an attorney, a certain professionalism in the way that you represent yourself and present yourself. Do the same for your investigative client. Mm -hmm. Um, Discuss rates. A lot of people don't want to discuss rates because, you know, it's uncomfortable. But discuss rates and make sure that you agree on what the rates and the payment schedule is going to be up front. Um, it's okay to send a rate sheet in the contract. In Colorado, we are required to have contracts. Uh, so make sure that you do that and that everything is clear right from the beginning. Um, you know, make sure that expenses are approved so you're not creating uh, creating any additional expenses without it being very clear of what that's going to be from the get-go. Have you run um, into a situation where that's been a problem? Oh, yes, yes, um, to the tune of several hundred dollars that were not agreed upon or approved. So sometimes that can make the, the difference. You know, ask if they have a budget that they're working from. The same, this have the same protocol that you would with another client. You know, see if there's a budget or something that you have to keep in mind, hours, the amount of hours that may be authorized on a case. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't assume that the originating investigator is going to be conducting preliminary investigations. I always do my own because, you know, everybody's research abilities are different, may Mm -hmm. not be the same. So make sure you do your own workup on a case. And you could be able to actually give more of a tidbit than they had to begin with, which makes you look like a really good investigator and a rock star behind the scenes. Exactly. So back to when you um, ran into the problem with the um, misunderstanding about the expenses, can you give us a little scenario about how that happened? Well, basically, um, it was a certain... I'm trying to remember what the specifics of the case are. I believe it was in document retrieval. We hired a subcontractor for document retrieval. They were supposed to go out, and within a couple of hours is what we had been told. Um, They were going to be able to obtain the documents. It was going to be a certain charge. When I received the final bill, the charge was several hundred dollars more um, because they took it upon themselves to actually go and and put in more hours than was authorized to begin with. Mm-hmm. So make sure you communicate that. Look, you know, I think there's more information out there, or, hey, we're going to go back out and uh, conduct more of an interview. Maybe we can get more information. Uh, is it okay that I spend a couple more hours on that case? Don't assume. Always make it very clear from the get-go. And how did you handle that situation, Andrea? 
well, as a, as a professional, we paid the bill regardless, but it's probably not somebody I'm going to use again. Right. And what about your client? We kind of ate that portion of the bill and uh, charged the client what should have been charged to begin with. Yeah, then, and that's what professional investigators do, frankly, <laughs> when yep, that happens. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, because you would have possibly lost your client had you yep. passed on that expense. Yep, exactly. Always make yeah. that decision to do what you feel is going to be in the best interest of your client or best represent your client. Yeah, yeah. So what about uh, equipment? I'm Did sorry, Francie, can you repeat that? Um, yeah, so what about oh. equipment when they, when they ask you if, if you have some equipment, a piece of equipment or another? Yeah, make sure that you have, if you're offering a certain, a certain type of investigation as a subcontractor, make sure you have the equipment that you need to conduct that investigation. Don't be asking the originating investigator or client if they have equipment that you can borrow. Um, the way I look at it is make sure that you are set up for whatever you need to do the type of investigations that you're offering. Right. If you're a surveillance investigator, you, you need to have a camera, for example. You need <laughs> to have a vehicle. camera and you need to have the covert cameras. So make sure that you have whatever you need to conduct that investigation. You wouldn't go to an attorney and say, do you have an inside video camera that I can borrow? I mean, just make sure that you have whatever you need to conduct that investigation in its entirety and turn over the product uh, to your client, your investigative client. So, Andrea, when you hire a subcontractor the first time, what are you asking them? Well, our company actually has a standard that we give to the subcontract investigator of what our standards are in our company, and I expect that subcontractor, as an extension of me, to follow those standards, you know, ethical investigations, that type of thing. Um, so what I expect is, is, as an extension of our company, that investigator to behave no differently than we would in conducting their investigation. I'm expecting them to go out and... and do their investigation, do their investigation as a whole and turn over a completed product to me. That's what I expect. Mm-hmm. So saying that as well, don't turn over um, half-written reports. Don't turn over products that aren't completed. Turn over a report or product video the same way that you would to another private client. And Andrea, when you're talking about ethical limits and boundaries, what what are you looking for, and have you, uh, I guess it's a two-part question, and have you had a situation where you felt that uh, a subcontractor that was working for you violated those boundaries? Absolutely. In the past, we have had that happen. We're very stringent about how we conduct our investigations because the way that we look at it is anything that we do in our company or somebody that does that as an extension of our company, it has to be able to be put into a court setting and and withstand scrutiny. So by ethical um, investigations, what I mean is sometimes, well, in this profession, I'm sorry to say, but sometimes you may receive phone calls from individuals that 
don't work that way and that may not conduct ethical investigations. They may want you to do something shady or something that you know is just not right or okay for you to do as an investigator, whatever the scope of that investigation may be. And if that's the case, make sure that you always stand your ground and say, no, I don't work that way or I can't do it that way. And that's what we expect from the investigators that we hire as subcontractors as well. Don't do anything that you feel that would not be that would not be ethical and that would not be above board. And what if it's already been done? How do you handle that? Well, if it's been done, you know, sometimes the only thing that you can do is either you have to uh, disclose that to your client because you don't want surprises in court, or you may um, have to uh, conduct that investigation again. You may have to reinvestigate the case and do it uh, with the correct standards in place. Um, obviously, if that's somebody that um, you hired does work that way and you find out in the course of an investigation, don't ever use that person again. Mm-hmm. And and what kinds of ethical violations have you seen, for example, that you've run into? Well, for, for example, in our profession, what we do as surveillance investigators on the insurance defense and don't try to make something happen. Uh, you know, we've heard and seen investigators that do that, that will do the old school way of letting the, the air out of the tires or um, conduct door knocks and speak with claimants or subjects that are represented, which we are not supposed to do. So those are the type of scenarios that you might, might run into. So what I found really works for us is make sure those expectations are communicated in the beginning of the investigation. We make sure that we communicate what's okay and what's not okay right from the get-go. For example, it's not okay to, say, lure somebody who's uh, supposed to be injured into doing something that would make them look like they're not injured. Exactly. Yeah, I think I, I don't know whether that's a law across the country, but it certainly is in California. I know it is in Colorado as well. Yeah. Back in the day, it used to be called roping. Entrapment right. is what, what it's more commonly known as now. Um, you know, like I said earlier, just anything that we do has to withstand the scrutiny in a court setting. So that's what you need to keep in mind in any investigation that you conduct or the people that you utilize. Have that conversation with them. Have the conversation with that subcontractor. How do you work? You know, what 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 is it that you do in the course of this type of investigation? Um, and make sure you communicate very clearly what is not acceptable. Yeah, very good, very good pointers. And I, I was fascinated with your comment about not completing, uh, not submitting half-completed reports. It's almost <laughs> astonishing to think that people actually do that, but I know they do. <laughs> they do, they do, and I think that the way that they kind of think is this is your buddy pal, your fellow investigator, and here I'll just submit what I have and your staff can complete it. Well, that's not, you know, completing a full um, product is the way I look at it. You're not, you're not, you would never do that with a corporate client or with an attorney and expect their staff to complete that product. Not at all, not at all, and and. And do you find at, at all that uh, when you hire some contractors, they sometimes put your case on the back burner because you're a, another PI versus... Absolutely. How they, I've how, heard how those excuses. Have, have you? 
I have, where it's like, look, I got really busy. I'll get to this next week. And it's like, no, when I subcontract out a case or somebody calls me and needs a subcontractor, meaning me to work on a case for them, I look at and know, and please know when you contact us or, you know, vice versa, that is the most important thing to me at that time is making sure that I take that load off of my client's lap. So make sure that you don't just put it on the back burner and because they're your uh, colleague that you find that it's okay to just put it on the back burner for several days on end and not communicate. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's easy to, I mean, we're all busy. It's easy to get caught up in too many cases and one, let, letting one fall through the cracks. And the one that's going to fall through the cracks is probably one you're working for another investigator. Exactly. And it makes them look bad to their client. They're, yeah. you know, they have to answer to their client. So just remember that when you take those cases on, communicate if you're not available for several days or several weeks or if something happens that this case, like say you get called into court, you know, that's something that you can't help. But make sure you communicate that to your client that you you are not available or that this is going to have to wait until they have somebody else that they would rather use rather than making them look bad to their client. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, one thing that always comes up when you get investigators talking together is what happens if the investigator that subcontracted the work to you doesn't pay you? And how do you handle that? So, (laughs) it's, uh, it's controversial. And some people, and I've heard this said in open forum, that they think they should be able to go to the original client to collect the money oh. instead of to the person they're working for. Yeah, myself, I would never do that. I mean, you know, we, we're all part of listservs. We've seen certain people be outed for that type of behavior. Um, you know, sometimes if you have that happen, a lot of people banter back and forth on the listserv about that kind of issue. But going to the original client, I don't know if that's the right answer either. Um, no, I think I wouldn't I, do that. Yeah, I actually think it's the wrong answer because they're not your client. No. You know, they may be the original client, but they are not your client. Your client is the person that you sub- or that uh, subcontracted, the, subcontracted the work to you. Right. I mean, you I know this go... is controversial in itself, but even other investigators, I've asked for a retainer. If it's somebody I've never worked with before and you don't have that type of rapport with me, I will ask for a retainer. Yes, guys, even from another investigator. (laughs) Well, you know what? I mean, we're all human and we all make mistakes. And, you know, some of us aren't as above board and ethical as others. That's just the way human beings are. Right. Or sometimes they may wait until their client pays them, which sometimes they may think it's okay for their client not to pay them for three to four months. But if you don't work that way, make sure it's very clear what you expect from the get-go, that you expect your invoice to be paid within 7 to 14 days or whatever that time frame may be. And if it's somebody you've never worked with, just ask for a retainer up front. Yeah. And, you know, and I think what's the important piece is there are people that maybe don't care if they wait a couple, three months. Yep. I can't imagine that, but, I, you know, there may be. And... And it may be a special circumstance, but the thing is that you, like you said, you have to talk about it. You know, if you're going to yeah. pay 
you know, it shouldn't be left unsaid. If you're planning on paying them immediately, let them know you're going to pay them immediately as soon as you get their invoice. If, if, you are, if your process is to wait for your client to pay you, then you have to talk about that. But you know what happens if your client doesn't pay you? You're still obligated to pay that investigator. That's a very good point, Francie. A lot of people feel that if, if they don't, if they don't get that payment, then they shouldn't pay who they hired to work the case. But you put it very, very bluntly. Uh, they're still responsible for that. And you're right. I think a lot of it kind of boils down to have those conversations up front, to have the expectations known up front on both sides. That way, there's no surprises at the end, and you can represent yourself as professionally as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Andrea, we've only got a a couple of minutes left here, but um, I know you have said that this is such a close-knit community. And, you know, the word gets around. If you don't do a good job, you know, other investigators know about it. And conversely, if you do a good job, other investigators know about it. And you get referrals from other investigators even to clients that aren't private eyes as well. Absolutely. And guys, bad word travels faster than good word. Yeah, for sure. So thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been fascinating. And and like we talked offline, uh, I've learned things about you I didn't know, and I've known you for years now. So this is really exciting. We're going to have to follow up with a conversation (laughs) another time. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for for letting me share my passion. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks so much, Andrea. And if you need a uh, professional investigator in, in Colorado, Andrea, do you want to give your website? It is apisurveillancespecialist.com. Thank you. There you go. And uh, you want to, uh, do you have a phone number you want to give out? It is 720-933-9301. Very good. Thanks, Andrea. Andrea Roscoe. And thank you so much. And for the rest of you, it's PIs Declassified. We will see you next week. Stay tuned. Uh, Have a great week. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 